Hi, it's Chuck Gallagher and time for Voices of Experience here in April. Now, let me start with a commercial. If you haven't signed up for NSA's Video Lab in April, that's April 12th through the 14th, at the Renaissance Atlanta Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia, then you're missing out. So, before we start our incredible lineup for April, go to your computer and sign up. That's right. Stop what you're doing. Sign up now. And, and look, you can even do it on your mobile device. But do it now because it's a you-won't-want-to-miss-it kind of event. Now, on with the show. My next guest is Extreme. I mean, really extreme. And he's a CSP, CPAE in the Speaker Hall of Fame and an NSA past president. And I admire his work and his commitment to our profession. And this interview goes deep for those who want to grow their business. And the first of the interview is dealing with pricing that is priceless. And truly, there is no pun intended. Really, you, you want to hear this. So please join me in welcoming Brian Walter to April VOE. Hi, this is Chuck Gallagher with Voices of Experience. My guest is Brian Walter. This is Roll 7, Scene 286, Take 1,411. Are you ever going to get it right, Brian? Uh, we can keep trying, keep trying, yeah. Yes. Okay, maybe this take will work. We were in a conversation. Yes. And it was really fascinating. Had no idea when I thought about having you on as a guest that it would go in this direction. So let's play with this and then see where else it might take us. But the conversation okay. dealt with money. Yes. And perception. Yes. So talk to me a bit about how you quote fees and the perception around money. Absolutely. Uh, all of us, no matter how short or how long we've been speaking at some point the client is either uh, going to ask us on the phone like so so what's your fee or they're going to ask it in writing and in our proposal we're going to put a number or a number range and like most speakers um, I would say that fee term in dollars and I'm just making up numbers here and I would say you know, my fee is $5,000 or the range of five to $7,000. And in the proposal, I would actually like a nice big thick aerial type, you know, dollar sign, you know, five comma zero 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 dot zero zero. And I would actually put that in bold, like that's the fee. And then I noticed something. So play with me here, Chuck. Uh, so let's say we go to a nice restaurant. I mean, not like the shishi French restaurant, but you know, a nice, okay. a nice, a nice sure. restaurant. Sure. You want to order an appetizer, right? How much does an appetizer cost at a nice restaurant? Um, fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars, and at a nice restaurant, <clears throat> how do they show that dollar sign one five dot zero zero bold? No, they just typically put a number. It's just a number. 15. I'm sure we, we've all noticed that. It's just, you know, a nice rate. It's like 15, 11, 8, 9. And it's not screaming. It's not like $15. It's like Euro-style font, 15. Right. And it got me thinking, why is that? So I did some, you know, heavy-duty research, which means I went on Google. And on the second page, I finally found my answer. Uh, there was a study by the American Culinary Institute, and I'm sure I'm misquoting this, and all the real researchers out of there will be horrified. But still, I've actually got my answer, which was they have done studies. And at a nicer restaurant, by not including a dollar sign, it reduces price resistance, and it creates that impression of 
You want what you want. Oh, the number number is just a detail. It's 15. No one's going to say, you know, at a nice restaurant, well, you know, the creme brulee is only 13. I should get that instead of the flourless uh, chocolate cake. You want what you want. And the price is just a detail. And I thought, that's how I want my clients to look at me like, we want Brian. Uh, we want his services here. And the price is just a, a detail. detail. So it started me thinking, it's like, I can't say, you know, my, my fee is like five to seven and not say anything. And, you know, you'd have to say like five to seven thousand. I thought, what's an easier way or a better way to say thousand without saying the word thousand? And it's the letter K. K. Yeah. That's right. In, in our society, sure. it's like a K stands for a thousand. So on the phone and in my proposals, when they say what my fee is, again, I'm just making up a fee here, um, they say, well, it's a range of about 5 to 7K or 10 to 12K or 1 to 2K. And it just sounds like that appetizer on the thing, like we're talking as professionals together. Oh, it's just it's a detail, 5 to, five to 7K. And they always, almost always go, oh, OK. Then in my proposals, I thought, what if there's never a dollar sign in my proposal? What if I actually write 5 to 7K or 10 to 12K or whatever that number is and express it as a K? So again, it's a detail like a nice appetizer at a restaurant. And I've been doing this for over six years, and I've seen price resistance go down. I find it's much more comfortable for me to quote my fee because it just sounds better to say 5 to 7K, 10 to 12K, 1 to 2K. And it's easier to say, and it's easier to hear, and clients and prospects seem to like it better. Okay, so Brian, I want to go down two roads with this. Number okay. one, um, what I'm hearing you say is you're taking out the dollar sign, you're taking out the comma zero, 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 you're just stating five, seven, eight, ten, whatever that happens to be, K, yes. to indicate that it's not five dollars. Okay. Right. Got it. But the other part of that that strikes me as interesting mm -hmm. is Every time you're saying this, you're quoting a range. Yes. Are you normally quoting ranges? Yes. All right, so tell me about the psychology of the range, and do people migrate toward the bottom end of the range? Or have, I guess I'm trying to find out, do they have resistance at the top end of the range? What, what, what drives that whole thing? Sure, what, uh, what I think drives the whole reason for a range is a phrase that I call, one is no fun. What's your fee? Boom, one number. What do you as a speaker want to protect at all costs? That number. Of course. You don't want sure. it to go down. Right. It's not going to go up, you know, but it, you don't want it to go down. Right. Every person you're talking to who has the ability to approve your proposal is probably a manager. Or if they're not a manager, they manage budgets. What do managers like to do? Negotiate. Negotiate. But sure. you're not going to negotiate because you said that's the number. And everything you're going to do is going to be to stop them from lowering that number. So now this negotiation is win-lose. Okay. So if there's one number, it's no fun because it's win-lose. It's like, oh, I'll prevail, hopefully. But how are they going to feel after they've done what all managers do and all owners of budgets do? They've tried to negotiate, and it's like there's one variable, the fee. So by putting in a range, it's not just a fee range and that's it. It's a fee range plus additional services. And so I usually say, well, it depends. There's a couple of variables of different things I can provide you, but the fee range is generally between 5 to 7K, 10 to 12K, you know, 
447,000 K to you know, half a million. Right. Yeah, uh, I'm going to put that fee. And then, and again, uh, usually, you know, you get a response from them. Oh, okay. And now they're going to want to talk about which services. Okay. And so here's the deal. How soon can we move them from an if conversation, if we're going to work with Brian, into a which conversation, which services of Brian are they going to use? So now we jump from, we don't even talk about the fee, because usually when we have the fee and they react to the fee, we don't actually want to talk about the fee. We want to talk about the value again. We've been talking about the value. We had to give them a fee range, but we want to get back talking about value. And by giving them a range and letting them know it has services, now we're actually going to continue talking about value. That's impressive. Okay, so I, now I'm going to ask the question. Yes. It may not make VOE because it, part of that's dependent upon you, but let's pull the curtain back. Yes. Okay. So give me an idea. If you said the fee range was A to B, yeah. what's the services that you would package to move someone to the top end of the range versus the bottom? So, uh, so here's, here's a slightly different shift that I, I uh, take on this here. Okay. It's like uh, my bottom is a number that I'm always good with. I'm never, in other words, we start at what I want and we add on top of that so that if they want to whittle it down, they whittle it down to what I'm already good with. Right. So I never lose. Okay. I sometimes lose. But I, you know, generally, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not always going to lose. <laughs> um, and then I put in additional services like, uh, like uh, Chuck's like, like what's, a, what's a topic that you love presenting on? Well, I present on ethics typically. On ethics. Okay, so let's say you're presenting for you know, a corp corporation here. I would say if I were uh, you, which would always be a cool thing because then I'd have more content, um, I would <laughs> go to the prospect and say, uh, one of the things um, I do is work, uh, adult, I can do a special briefing or special you know, uh, intimate uh, session uh, with your high potentials. Now, in most organizations I work with, they've identified like younger you know, uh, uh, leaders or younger people who are potentially going to be senior leaders, and they like to give them additional types of support and development opportunities. Do you have someone like that in your organization? And nine times out of 10, they're gonna say, well, yes. It's like, now what this group loves is being identified as those people. And so it's kind of like a deeper dive just for them. Now we can do that the same day or the day before or the day after. And so that's one of the services that I know a lot of my clients like. What they're immediately going to do is start talking about how that would work for them. Well, that's good. You know, we've identified a group and they're going to start immediately applying that. And then, but why stop there? And so, uh, another uh, thing that uh, some, not all, but you know, some uh, of our clients like to do, and then I mention another service. I'll usually mention two to three services uh, that I can provide, which are related about the live appearance or before, immediately after, and we see how they react. And then I stop talking and I sit back. Now, either in the conversation, the negotiation there, or in the negotiation that follows, they're going to go back to the fee, and then they're still, no matter what you say, they're going to want to lower it. And they say, well, you know, you know, uh, Chuck, Brian, whatever hybrid we're talking to, uh, you know, it's like, well, you know, we, let's say I said five to seven K, you know, we, we don't quite have, you know, seven uh, K we've, we've got a, a six here. And I said, okay, great. So out of those uh, services here, which one would you like me not to do? Wait, then they're going to hem and hop. Well, uh, uh, let's, uh, 
uh, let's not have you do that, the second one that you, you, you talk. I mean, that's good. It's good. But, uh, you know, we, we don't really need that. I said, okay, okay great. And uh, uh, any others? Again, you're confirming what they want. You're confirming the value. And it's like, no, no, we, we want that. So how much would that be? Well, you just get to pull a number out of your favorite orifice at that point. <laughs> because... You haven't said it's. You haven't. It's not like a, you know a, a, an itemized menu. You just so you can put that in there. Now here's my favorite thing to do, and this is you know gets really into inside baseball you know type of thing, is uh, you know they say this and, and I say let's say I say okay that would you know that would be uh, that would be six okay then there so the great it's like oh no we can do that we can do that and it's like well you know you're so what's going on? well you know we we still really like that thing. Tell you what. I'll toss that in anyways. <gasps> you would. So we've negotiated. They got a concession out of me, which is what they wanted. I still have more than I was actually willing you know, to come to the event, event for. And then I just became a really good speaker. And they like me because I added in something that's very easy for me to do in improv. But they have the perceived value of that. And then, and here's the advanced thing that I, I don't know very many speakers who do. It's like, what is the piece of paper you absolutely guarantee 100% that the client will read? Your invoice. Of course. On my invoice, if I've given them something free, it's like I give them credit for it. So I itemize it out. My presentation, here's this, you know, this, the, you know, uh, yeah, this service and this service, and then I go special negotiated no charge by, and I say their name. And then on the right column, NC or zero. Yes, I suck up to my clients in an invoice. And you know what? They're like, oh, that felt so good. Because they like to be negotiations. They negotiate with me. They got a concession from me. And so it's like, if you're going to cave and give them a concession, why not continue to get bonus points for that? Because those bonus points are worth cash and prizes. They're redeemable. Okay, so from a VOE perspective, there's two parts to this. Number one, that is some great information. Mm -hmm. Two, the brrrr just is going to play beautifully on this. <laughs> I can see it now. This is so lovely and animated. It is absolutely They're preening awesome. like a bird in front of you because, and we do the same thing. It's like, oh, they just paid our full fee. Precious. It's like we have a triple. Here's my precious proposal. Brian, you absolutely rock. Thank you, my friend, for being a part of VOE, for the contribution that you've made, and, and in all honesty, for the contribution that you make with NSA, because I've never known a time that people aren't always congregated around you asking questions, and you are always, just like today, providing incredible content that we can take action on. Well, it's very generous. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. She's known as the shoe lady. So I'm clearly not the one who should be doing this interview. That should be done by Meredith Oliver, my co-host, who's uh, into shoes. And what's up with that anyway? I mean, all you need is a black pair and done. Well, now I have potentially offended half my audience, but I promise you'll recover with Kay Francis as my guest. We begin with a drum roll, because Kay Francis is in the house here on April VOE. <laughs> wow. 
Kay Francis is in the house, Woo -woo. new CSP. Yes, how about that? That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you so much. You know, you know what CSP stands for? I don't know if you know this. Can supply paperwork. Oh, my. Yeah, because it's there it is a lot of paperwork. It is a lot yes, of paperwork. Yes, it is. It is. But they've made it. They've streamlined it a lot, so it's not too bad. So I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm really honored, and it's, it's fun. But Kay, you've been, you have been, you've, you've earned your CSP years ago. It's the paperwork that, well, there's that. brought you to this point. <laughs> that's it. That's okay. exactly, yes. Because you've been doing this for like 30 years? 34 years, yes. And I, so I've got to ask you a question because I know that you started in stand-up comedy and, and every time I've been around you, I'm just crying. I'm, oh. you know, I'm just, <laughs> and that's not from a bad reason. Oh, yeah, it's from right. Laughter. Yeah. But in the world that we live in today, you know, people say, well, you need to have humor incorporated in your presentation, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems everything is so politically correct. Oh, I don't goodness. know what, I don't know what you can do. It's hard because, well, I came out of the comedy clubs and what I gave up when I gave up stand-up comedy was basically freedom of speech. It's the truth. If you want to speak to a wide audience and you don't want to offend and you want to relate, I want to relate to as many people as possible. I don't want to alienate them, which is, I think, most of our goals Absolutely. to do. And I mean, I'm not, you know, any kind of a shock speaker or anything like that. So I had to give up freedom of speech. And that and not only just like language, but uh, when I leave the platform, people don't know my religious tendencies, my political, not even a whiff. And, you know, people, it's dog whistle. People can hone in. They will know your politics if you, you know, aren't careful. And some people really kind of want to slip that in. I simply don't. I simply want to relate to as many people as possible. I want them to leave feeling better than when they came in. I don't want them to leave upset. Okay. That's certainly not a goal. So, so Kay, if... If you sit back and you say, well, you gee, politics probably ought to be off the table and religion probably ought to be off the table. And certainly we can't talk about um, people's size or sexual preference or gender preference. I'm, there's nothing left. So, so, so what advice do you give someone that, you know, let's say they've had years of experience speaking, but they're new to NSA and they say, Kay, you're a new CSP. Congratulations. And you're a humorist. Tell me, what do I need to know? What are some tips? Okay. I will get some tips, but let me back up a little bit. When I Great. first joined NSA, which is 13 years ago, I heard this phrase that said, do you have to be funny to speak? And you know the answer to it, right? Only if you want to get paid. And I have thought about that, and I, I think it's absolutely not true for starters. S secondly, the, I'll call it the F word, being funny is a very high standard. That's comedian fun. That means laughter out loud. And when people say they want to put funny into their presentations, to me it's like if they're a really good piano player and somebody says, you know, if you want to get paid, you're going to have to play the violin. So they go to a 90-minute session and just observe and take notes on how to play the violin? No, because being funny is the same skill set as anything else, as speaking. You know how many years it takes to hone a presentation. So I like to just, let's just take funny off the table, humor, and that is a different level. You know, as a comedian, you're expecting to laugh every six seconds. 80% of the audience should be laughing 80% of the time. Jerry Seinfeld worked on a bit about Pop-Tarts for three years. He's the master technician. The guy is a nut. George uh, Carlin said that a working comedian, someone that's working five or six times a week, getting up, working the material, honing the material, will work out about 15 minutes a year. Now, remember the standard I said, 80% of the audience, 80% of the time. This is why his HBO specials were about five years apart, because it took him that long. Now, for a high-content speaker, they do need to be engaging. Otherwise, what, you, what are you doing? You're up there, are you going to read from an encyclopedia? 
because people can get information from a book. You still have to give them experience by being engaging. Uh, yes, humor, warmth, and trust that natural warmth. I think all speakers have it. Now, there are a few little techniques to put it in today. First of all, you have to keep your humor antenna up because it really is everywhere. Carry a notepad or if you take notes in your phone and when something strikes you funny, it will probably strike other people funny. Also, we've all got cell phones with cameras now oh and goodness. it's everywhere. I saw a dog in the airport that had a vest on that said, pet me. And I just thought, that's adorable. And then I thought, whose hands have been on that dog? I don't know where they've been. And then I said, you know, that little vest wouldn't look near as cute on me. And it's, it ties in with the point, which is another thing, being a funny motivational speaker, I speak on stress management. Now my humor needs to make a point. And it is comedy. They're, they're laughing out loud at times. And I leave on a big funny piece. But again, I came out of stand-up comedy years of honing that. So I feel like people get really frustrated. They go to a quick session and think, well, I have to be funny and I'm not funny and I don't know what to do. Right. So also I think is uh, recycle humor. We all have those moments in our presentations. So it's really important to tape, to, to tape, you know, I'm 100. Yeah. No, that's okay. Yeah. Record every presentation because those little ad-libs or people from the audience say things. Here's just a little one. This isn't hilariously funny, but it's kind of cute. I ask my audience sometimes, what do you guys do to manage your stress? And some audiences are better than others at piping in. And one time this lady was right in the front row. I mean, Chuck, she was just deadpan with like narrowed eyes. And she says, hire a hit man. And I mean, the whole audience, at first, we, it was like nervous laughter. But as I recreated that later, I said, you know, I did, you know, the other day I was in Dallas, and I asked this, the audience the same, this lady said, hire a hit man. I said, I don't know if she was kidding. I don't know. I think she has problems beyond. But it gets a big laugh because right. I can recreate something that happened. As long as it's not a you had to be there. It's right. got to be kind of quick. So little things like that, pictures. I'm a big believer in slides. I know some people don't use PowerPoint, but I think if you're a high content speaker and you want humor, I think think of funny signs, family photos, things like that that will help you reinforce points, but will add levity to your presentations. I think it's the quickest, easiest way, myself. You know, Kay, it's, it's funny that you use the example of a lady on the front row because I, I often in my presentations will, will use an example where I say, well, I went to mom and I asked her, would you loan me money? And it was a legitimate part of the presentation. And in one audience, the lady looks at me and she says, boy, she says, I've been on social security for years. You hadn't given me any money. Why should I give it to you? Oh. And it was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, the audience cracked up, <laughs> but it was like, that was the greatest line. So yes. every time since then, yes. I will use, I'll find somebody that will say yes. And then I'll say, now here's what happened. Yeah. And it gets yeah. the laugh. There's a, so don't let those get away. We tend to take those for granted. And we forget that we can carry that in. It's exactly what you're saying. And, and people are hilarious. I let them be funny. Let the people be funny. Another thing you can do, and, and I didn't make this up. Some people call it two lies and a truth. But let's say you have a piece of data you want to impart. Let's say you speak on generations. And it might be something like, uh, younger generations are especially impatient and unwilling to wait a whole year for blank. What do you think, Chuck? What are they unwilling to, and impatient and unwilling to wait for? If you, and if you go to the audience and let them just kind of blurt stuff out, someone will say something funny. Right. They might even say the actual answer, which is their performance review. Okay. So you just can mine from the audience. And again, let them be funny. Who cares? And then you can carry that to the next presentation. You know, the last time you know, I was in Florida, I was speaking, somebody yelled out such and such. Because right. people are funny. So let them. So, Kay, with the career that you've had, I want you to look to current K, yes. looking back at younger K, yes. what would you tell younger K not to do? Okay, first of all, the perm has to go. 
don't fry your hair, for God's sake. <laughs> Lord, girl, did you know? Uh, I would say, you know what, I actually I think it's life lessons that maybe wisdom gets us. It's a nice thing about growing older is you look back and you go, why did I worry about so many things? To have that body back, the things I worried about, worrying about what other people think. Of course I care what other people think. I'm not immune to that. I'm not the Unabomber living in a, a, a cabin by myself typing out manifestos. You know, I live in the world with other people. I care what they think of me. But I mostly care what I think of me. And once I'm happy with that, the, the rest of it sort of fades away. So I would say, just stop it. Stop the worry and concern and, and relax and enjoy it. As a stand-up comedian in New York, I was possibly the unhappiest, unfunniest person in the world. I was so fraught with anxiety all of the time. I'm here in this big city, you know, Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm. I didn't even know how a bus operated. I had to learn everything. It was in my mid-30s, and I was from a small farm town. So I just would say just just relax a little don't be so hard on yourself that's what i would say just relax into it and it's so funny the irony is the less i worry about being funny the funnier i've gotten i'm funnier now than i ever was when i did stand up you wouldn't know it from this interview but i'm just saying you have to trust me that i i'm very funny really i am funny funny but yeah but it's um that's oh, what that's, I, that's, <laughs> that's very funny that's very funny okay. uh, yeah but so that's what I would say. Just relax. Relax a little bit. Everything's not so huge, you know. First world problems. Just ooh. I didn't have any problems. I thought I did. I really didn't. Okay. Thank you for the time. Congratulations on the CSP. Oh, yay me! Thank you. Yes, yay you. Yes, it's all about me this week, Chuck. All about me. Yes, I even well, we showered in this medal. I even showered. Oh in it, so, my yeah. goodness! You're well, awesome, Chuck. Thank it's you a for... clean medal. That's good. Yes, that's right. Thank you for all you do. You're awesome. You're just such a giver. I've been a fan of yours for years. Pleasure. You're awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Sad. And now my image is Kay Francis standing in the shower keeping her CSP metal clean. T-M-I. Hi, this is Chuck Gallagher with my co-host Meredith Oliver. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. In March, Diana Boer was a fountain of knowledge about book publishing. Her interview has continued this month as she reveals more about what we as speakers and authors need to know to succeed in the world of publishing. And as always, thanks to Diana for her willingness to so openly share. And now, here's Diana Boer, part two. Oh, and by the way, just check out how she uses her talent, interest, skill, and combines that with opportunity to make things happen. It's a fascinating interview. I see them, which is, they're two major, major literary agencies. And I've had that firm tell me when I started out, if you publish 10,000, I mean, if you sell for a business book, you sell 10,200 copies, you're they're, they're always going to publish you. Now, for my major books that have been uh, published by certain different publishers, and, I, and they were sold and re-sold in hall, um, as a Hallmark version, and they sold in Walmart, they've sold in Costco, they've sold in all those major stores. Now, some of those have sold over half a million copies, and they may or may not have been a disappointment to somebody who'd been paid a million-dollar advance. You know, it depends on how much they paid you up right. front. And those I didn't get. I didn't get a million dollar advance on it, but they were thrilled. My publisher was thrilled when they sold a half million copies. Sure. Of those. So okay, I still want to go back to one question, mm -hmm. but 
you've published in so many different genres. Mm -hmm. Is it that you just really love writing in different areas or are you a bit of an opportunist? Do you think, aha, I think there's probably a weakness there and I can submit a proposal and if the proposal lands, then I will write the book. Help me understand that. I, I like to write. Okay. Thing, it, when I start out now, you know, of course, my area that, of expertise in the last, say, 25 years is communication. That's yes. what I speak on when I'm right. in corporate America. But I also like to write. That was my master's degree is writing and creative writing at that. So when I first started out, my agent would just come to me and say, here's, here's an area. I have a publisher asking a book on this. Would you like to do it? And then, then after I'd you know, published some good sellers, then the publishers would actually contact my agent and say, go to ask Diana if she would like to do this book for us. And Simon & Schuster had me do a whole series. I did about six books for them, just on different topics. Every one of them was on a different topic. They'd had a, a survival guide, a survival series of self-help books on a lot of different topics. And so publishers will come and ask, you know, would you like to do this? I've even had uh, Barnes & Noble to come back and go to my agent and say, get ask the if she'd like to do this, and they'll come up with a title. I've had, I've had them on two different occasions to say, we've had people come in the store and ask for books on this subject, and we don't have anybody to write it, and go to the agents, and then the agent would come to me and say, do you want to do it? So I guess the answer is both, both and. I look for opportunities where there's a need or where clients, a lot of times I'll be in an organization, and a client, you know, if I run into three or four clients, with the same challenge, I'm thinking, aha, <laughs> here's an opening, and this is my area of expertise. Oh, I love that. So it, it works both ways. Right. So you write on what you know, but you also love to write. So by doing what you love to do and doing it well, right. then people come to you and say, well, well hey, could you do it again? Yes. And I even have, sometimes speakers will come and ask me if I want to do a book. And I've done, I've done three or four like that. Um, Sometimes I like to do that if it's, an, if it's a topic that's really exciting, and sometimes I don't. Okay. <laughs> I'm what, I really, what I really, really prefer is to coach other speakers to realize their dream, to, to lead them through the process, uh, help give them some ideas for doing primary research, give them some unique ideas for marketing that book. So I've, I've helped a lot of speakers do that. I really prefer that than okay. helping them. Now, you have, you, you are noted for uh, not, not taking forever to write a book, right? That's, that's true. I like to get it done. Right. So. I might be the, what is that guy's name? The female version of the get her done. <laughs> get her done. <laughs> yeah. That's right. right. Oh, wow. From the South. That just so resonates. Yeah. I like that. So. So what would you say to somebody if they said, okay, I've got this great idea for a book, Diana. Now, what's the process and how quickly, reasonably quickly, can someone write a book? If they prepare well, they should be able to write a book in about uh, no more than three weeks, but usually seven days, eight days, something like that, a couple of weeks. And I know that because I keep a lock and I... You have to be prepared first. You can't just lollygag around, you know, and say, "Okay, this is my week. I'm going to write the book." There is a certain amount of preparation, and there there are three or four things that help you do the book fast. Okay. And one of them is the mindset that I am going to get it done. And I do marathons. I spoke on that uh, 30 years ago 
of course, I know that's hard to believe. I'm only 29 years old. I, you know, I was going to say, you must have started just as a but, wee child. Yes, but I, I spoke on that probably 30 years ago. It's one of the first things I mentioned is deciding I'm going to get it done and not stringing it out. I'm going to do it in two weeks. I'm going to do it in three weeks, however much time you allow yourself. July, August is a great time for speakers, December to January when people have a, or Thanksgiving to first of the year when we have a slow time in the speaking sure. business or even whatever time for your industry. Sure. And then telling people so they don't interrupt you. Tell your family, your friends, you know, commit. This is it. I'm not going to answer your emails except after midnight when I quit or, or whatever. And then making sure that you've done your research. You're not going to be researching. You're not going to be interviewing. You're not going to be doing anything but drafting. That's, I'm not talking about editing. I'm actually talking about doing your drafting during that time. And you're not talking about your outline. You already know where you're going. That's, that's pre this two weeks. But you actually know what you're going to do. You're writing in your area of expertise. You've done your reading, whatever it is. You're sitting down to read. And then you do what I call a marathon. And you sit down. You, as soon as your feet hit the ground, you might can brush your teeth before you start. But you are at your computer at 6.30 in the morning. And you are going. You first break. Then, okay, you get dressed at 8.30. And then you sit there and you write. And you may get up and do some calisthenics at 1.30. And then you might eat lunch at 3. And that's the way your day goes. The breaks that you need, that's how you function through the day. Right. And gen generally, I put in a 14-hour day to write. And I will do that for six days. And if I didn't get it finished in that six days, then I go to church on Sunday and then I repeat it the next week. But I have a log. And as you see the pages go down, I keep a, a, a track of how many hours I put in, how many pages I did. Uh -huh. And so I know exactly how many, ask me whatever book, and I've got the record of how long it took to do it. And you don't reread the next day. What, once you're in it, you don't go back and reread because you'll spend half your time rereading where and oh well that sentence needs to be fixed oh well that paragraph that didn't sound right let me rewrite that story that doesn't work that's wasting your time you just need to get it down you will be more consistent your voice will be consistent you'll the pace will be right and once you get to the end then you feel so relieved. you feel great it's there it's like a toy now you can play with it and then you know let it cool off wait two or three weeks, then you can go back and fix things. You know, if it's the story's rough, you can rewrite that. And that's, that's relief because you think the pressure's off. It's done. It's there. The material's there. I have 250 pages here. And you can, then, then there's certain steps. I, I go through, I teach that 12-step process when I'm, you know, speaking at a writer's conference or something. But that mental preparation, the research, the outline, the mindset, that's all I'm going to do here. And, and I used to tell my staff, and I, I would say, I'm not going to pick up email. I, I will pick it up at a certain time. When I take a break from 12 to 12.15 or between chapters, I will give them a time range between 12 and 2, sometime between there. I will be between chapters. I will need to get up and go to the bathroom, and I will check my email then. And then I will check email between 8 and 9 at night. And if there's anything I need to leave for you the next morning, I will do that. And that's when they expect it. If they had to you know, get back to a client or tell somebody something about something they were booking far out, then they know I will be picking up at 8 and 9, and if they haven't left me a message between 8 and 9, then I won't get it till the next check-in time. And that is the secret to getting it done. You know, that sounds so easy. And 
And actually, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know that I've had the discipline to do that for the three books that I've written, but I like the idea because it is so frustrating to have an idea and it, for it to drag years instead of weeks or even months. You know, Chuck, that is, that's the problem. I've had so many people in LSA tell me, I have been working on this for years and I can't get it. I have years and years and they can't get it done. Right. But I've had them say, I tried it and it worked. And they're right. so excited because they said it actually worked. And I turned that book around and finished it that I've been working on for four years or seven years or eight years. It, it works. It absolutely does. For the experienced speakers or for the people who have written a number of books, I've, I've got them. I don't know if it's an odd question. It's just a completely different direction. And that is, here you've created, in your case, you've created 47, 48th under contract, a whole number of books. How do you, how do you plan on uh, leveraging or protecting that uh, intellectual property? Because at some point in time, and I'm, I'm going to say it this way, it's because I'm, I'm in my 60s at this point. At some point in time, it's possible that I'll choose to retire or it's possible that I just won't be on this planet. And, and, you know, and then I look at my kids and think, well, what are they going to do with what's left behind um, versus how can I prepare for the transition of that material? I have always protected, you know, as soon as you fix the words on the page, they are copyright. But I also have planned plan to be a content creator. I never started out to be a speaker. They just happened because once the books were published, people started calling me. My first client was Shell Oil, who said, I'm in the public library reading this book. Can you come out and oh, wow. speak to us about this? Oh, uh, no, that was so hard. <laughs> but actually, when the Houston Chronicle ran a huge story, the front page of the business section on, on the book once it was released, but even before then, I called on companies saying, I have a book coming out with, and mentioned, you know, the book would be out. And I was able to call on clients once it was a major publisher. You know, you just said the book will be released by X publisher and anybody right. will let you in the door. I mean, C-suite officers, when you say, I've got a book coming out with this major publisher, right. they want to talk to you. And so I got access to the C-level C off, uh, company officers with major companies just with that alone. But I immediately began to think equity because I didn't want to have to show up and sell my time. I, w I was fortunate to be mentored by two entrepreneurs who had an engineering company. And they said right off, you'll never be a multi-million dollar company if you are selling your time. You have limited time. You've got to create something besides, you know, just yourself. Time. Sure. They were consult an engineering consulting firm, and they, they didn't get out and do the business themselves. They said, we run the company. We're, we're hiring other engineers, and you've got to think beyond that. So when I very started my company, I never thought about being a speaker. I thought, I'm creating intellectual property here. And so immediately when I wrote the first book, I was creating it with the course in my training company, training products, because my undergraduate degree was in English. And so I'm thinking, I've got to write a book. You know, I was thinking teaching. I taught school one year and I was thinking, okay, I'm a teacher. I got to do, you know, just different students. Instead of English, senior English, I've got to think teaching engineers to write, teaching sure. auditors to write, teaching sure. lawyers to write. 
And that's how I started. I was teaching lawyers to write, teaching engineers to write. And so that became my protection to send those courses off. I created the leader's guide, created the participant manuals, created the, the uh, job aids, created everything I would need. And then I started creating for online. I was one of the first online creators back in the early 90s. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and um, I had a company in Ireland that bought it. Uh, and then IBM, excuse me, had me create some for them. And then Zbeck, and then McGraw-Hill bought from Zbeck and Model Office, you know, all these different collaborations and buyouts that happened in the early 90s and mid-90s. But all of those were ways to protect my IP. And then I had people come by and say, well, who, who, who's going to buy all this? Well, I didn't know who, who was going to buy this. It could be strategic partners or I thought a key client. IBM was client for like 25 years before I sold my company eventually last year. But I thought, okay, one of my key clients might buy my training company. Somebody from, um, you know, just out of the blue might buy it. Or one of these producers, IBM, for a long time, taught, talked about buying my company. Um, a consulting company like McKinsey might buy it. Uh, Arthur Anderson approached me at one point about buying it. So it could be a strategic partner. It could be um, just another publishing company could buy mm -hmm. it because I had built a library. I was I had 24 training courses at one time. Right. So uh, all of those, think as a speaker, think who are your potential buyers? Those are protect as long as you, they're not dependent on you. And as long as you have a leader guide, your participant materials, you have online, you have a lot of different platforms, that's all intellectual property and assets that you have to sell. Your time you can't sell. Once you kick the bucket, you leave the planet, as you put it. Right. You, yep. That's gone. In Inventory's but, gone. But when you have assets, that's what you can sell. So that's my situation now. Once I sold last year to, well, I've sold my company actually twice. I sold it, then I bought it back, and then I've resold it to Municipal. But now I can operate as a speaker and, and continue to write because as long as I'm creating more content, right. then I have more content to sell. But I just sold off the training division. and sold, my, my trainers went with it. My employees went with it. All of it was part of the sale. Thank you for your transparency and for the incredible amount of wisdom you shared. At the Writers' Conference, you were, you were just as transparent and it was just as great, but this is so much more fun for me, at least one-on-one, -on -one. And, and I appreciate on behalf of the people who are listening to VOE, uh, the information that you've shared to help guide us in the right direction because, again, 48 books by major publishers speaks volumes and the ability to take a company and to know that you can leverage that company, sell that company, and that you're able to do something with what you've uh, created is, 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 is amazing. Diana, thank you so much. Thank you, Chuck. I've enjoyed it. And now it's time for Money Matters, here with Joel Block on Voices of Experience. Are you a CSP? And I'm not talking about a certified speaking professional, which is NSA's coveted special designation for its most elite speakers. What I'm talking about, are you a communicator who solves problems? All of us need to be communicators who solve problems because that's what clients are hiring us to do. 
they're not hiring us to fill a gap in time between appointments. They're hiring us because they have a problem and we have a solution and they want to marry those two things together. And the better job you do of being a communicator who solves problems, the more money you're worth, the more invitations you're going to get to return, and the more referrals are going to come your way. So always think about being a communicator who solves problems or a CSP in our world, because that is how you draw a line to the money. He's masterful in what he does. I mean, talking about owning a market and running a business, Alan Berg does both. In our time together, Alan opened my eyes in two major ways. One, it's clear he thinks outside the box to create a bigger box from which to create revenue. And two, he uses analytics to evaluate his business so that he can logically create outcomes that many would only hope to obtain. Listen closely, because Alan is a wealth of knowledge. Alan, thank you for being my guest on VOE. Now, you've been here before. Yes. David Newman did a masterful job. Niche domination. Well, that's right. Niche domination. Um, but what I wanted to do is to take that deeper. Because you own a niche. Yes. And it's the wedding industry. It is. Okay. So first thing, a lot of people would sit back and say, okay, well, how do you, how can you make a living in that narrow an industry, realizing that there are going to be peaks for the people who are performing it, so therefore there have to be off-season times when you're highly in demand, and there's only one of you that can be squeezed into a short period of time. Right. So I'd like to know if if you sat down with me and I said, okay, I'm thinking about dominating a niche, mm -hmm. what advice are you going to give me in terms of specifically what to do and how to bore down into that to make it sustainable? That great question. I don't have one revenue stream. I know people here that are keynoters, that's all they do are keynoters, they're a trainer, that's all they do, they're trainers. I have five different revenue streams. Uh, we'll get into the seasonality of it in a second, but five different revenue streams. So I have speaking. Okay. I right. have, and I have sales training where I'll do one, I'll go to a company and I will do sales training. I have group sales training, which I call a strategic roundtable or a mastermind or something like that. I have my products. And then I have one large client, which when I first started, uh, it's actually the biggest competitor to my former employer who downsized me. Uh, Imagine. How do you like that? Um, one year non-compete on the day of the one year was up. I signed an agreement with them. It's been six years now I've been doing that. Okay. But when I started, they were a good 30, 40% of my revenue. Now they're maybe 25% of my revenue because I've built the other side of that up. So what that allows me to do is not rely on any one thing. And every year, if you look at those five on a, like a, a bar graph, product is always going to be the smallest of that. It, it just okay. And, and product for you is what? I have four different books. So okay. I have four books that are out now. Two of them are in their second edition. I have uh, all of them. The new one will be out in Spanish soon, but they're all out in Spanish. They're all out in Kindle. They're all out in audio, which I resisted for a long time. And I have to say, it's not a moneymaker because Audible owns you. Uh, they also do, based upon how long your book is, is how much they charge for it. 
yeah, I know you got that look on your face that I had. I can't set the price of it. So one of my books is an hour and a half. One is two. One is two and a half hours. One is three and a half hours. And the price goes up as it's longer. Oh, okay. So, it, so let me just put this in terms I can get. Okay. Right. The bigger the book, the more Audible will charge because it's going to take longer to read or to hear or whatever. Right. And that's going to be the functioning and determining price. So if you create a small book that you might be able to make a lot of money from in the back of the room, from an audible perspective, it's not going to create. No. What it does is it extends the reach. Okay. And I listen to audiobooks now. That's why I've become the big fan of it. I didn't do it until I recorded my first one. And it's the whole you don't know what you know, don't know until you don't know it, and then you, you know it. I recorded the one, the first one, and I started listening to audiobooks like, I'm in the car. I'm listening to an audiobook. I'm walking through the airport. I'm listening to an audiobook. I'm reading because the other books would stack up on my desk and I would take them and I wouldn't read them. And now I'm listening to books and I'm a voracious listener, reader, whatever it is. Sure. So I now look, I was, I've been sitting in sessions, pulling up Audible on my phone, looking for the books that they've been recommending or that the person speaking is, and I haven't found a bunch of them. Interesting. And it's going to prevent me from reading some of these people's books. Now, I do my own reading because being a speaker, people are used to this voice. I write like I speak. Audiobooks was the easiest thing for me to do once I started because I just I write like I speak. Reading the book was literally just talking to you. Sure. It was so easy in English. I do have a personal goal of doing my books in Spanish. It took me about 10 hours to record a three-and-a-half-hour book. It took me a half an hour to do one page in Spanish. <laughs> Okay. I didn't get very far. Right. I didn't get very far on that one. Uh, but I do present in Spanish, but I didn't translate my own books, so that was a little bit harder on that one. So the audiobooks extend the reach because people like me now want to read someone's book, and now they can do it. Interesting thing with Audible. Here's a little side note business. Of, we're talking about business. Absolutely. I make more money because people go on to Audible who have never been on Audible, sign up for a membership, and I get a bounty. I get $50 if you sign up on Audible to be a subscriber. I might get a dollar and a half from my book, but I could get $50 because you signed up oh, as a wow. subscriber. So when I get my spreadsheet, it's like book sales, US, international, whatever, because people are buying them around the world, which is cool. But I'm, I'm making more money because they're signing up as new Audible subscribers. So Audible is using me as a springboard to get to that audience. That audience now becomes a subscriber. Mm. They get their credits. But again, it's revenue. I don't care where it came from. It, it's revenue. And then the other books, Kindle. I'm making money from the Kindle. I'm making money from the paperback. Giving people access to you and your content in as many ways as possible. So whereas hey, But I, that's the one that provides the least amount of revenue. But it's not insignificant revenue. Okay. So it has been in previous years as much as 10 plus percent of my total revenue. Um, but also now that other revenue might grow, it could be maybe 8% or whatever, but the number each year is still going up in total. And where does it come from? My third book was my most popular book so far. My new book that's out, I have a feeling is going to match that. So making more money directly from Amazon. Uh, I, I put my books exclusively on Amazon because they pay you more than if you also have them on Nook and stuff like that. And they're on Amazon, and I'm getting from Europe, and I'm getting from other parts of the world, and people are buying books. Again, it's the dribs and drabs that all of a sudden, you know, every month you're getting checks. No checks. You're getting deposits. Sure. For, you know, for $300, 400 $500, and like, okay, that doesn't hurt. 
Right. Uh, we, you know, we can go on vacation on that. Sure. <laughs> That'll work. So that revenue stream is important because it extends the reach for someone who might read the book and then say, because of course it says in the back of the book about the author. Of course. If you want Alan to come and train your sales team. If you'd like Alan to come and speak for your event. It's in the book there and it's another way for somebody to say, hey, I like the way this guy writes. I like the way he speaks because I do write very, very personally one-to-one. -one. So that, that's in there. The speaking leads to the sales training. Okay. The sales training in the group started organically. A customer, potential customer, contacted me, said, Alan, could you come down to Florida and do sales training for my catering company? Sure. Told her how much it was. She called me back. She goes, I don't think I could swing that by myself. But I'm a caterer. My friend's a venue, and another friend's a florist, another friend's a wedding planner, and another friend's a photographer. Could we just split that and have you spend the day with the five of us? Ding. I said, that's a great idea. Let's do that. That became a one-day mastermind or strategic roundtable or whatever we want to call it, where I'll do that with a group of people. And when someone says, it's too much for me, I say, well, why don't you get some, in the industry, we call them frienders, friends who are vendors. Why don't you get some frienders together, whether it's one other business, two, three, four, I'll do up to eight or 10, if, as long as there's not too many people per company, and do a group training. Now, you have a special name for that, don't you? So that's either a... a a one-day mastermind, okay. or it's a strategic roundtable. Okay. Those are the two things that we, we okay. might call it. We're, we're floating different ideas for it. But the idea is, it could be two businesses, just split it for the day. I've had it where four, of, four businesses have said, let's do it. One had one person, one had ten people, one had two, one had seven. doesn't matter. Okay. All right. I'm doing one, actually, I'm leaving here and going to the, the East Bay in California, three businesses. Now, they told me they'd like me to come for a mastermind. And I said, great, three business. That's a great size. How many people are you going to have? Well, I'm going to have seven to nine. But, hmm, well, that's quite a few. How about the other two businesses? Oh, 17 and 19. So, well, that's going to be 45 people. That's a little bit more than just sitting around a table and masterminding. So I let them still call it a mastermind, but I'm going to do more of a facilitated training conversational kind of a day. Okay. It's, it's Alan in front of the room instead of Alan at the table with you. Right. That has become, actually this year, that is the largest source of my income. If I look at the bar graphs, this year, that's the largest source. Speaking is, is a little behind last year. That's up. Sales training, way up. Product, a little bit above last year. And then my other big client is a pretty consistent number because our number is pretty consistent year to year. So you're going into a location and you're saying, hey, we can pull, what did you call them? Friend? Frienders. Frienders. Friends. Who are vendors. Okay. So we're going to pull frienders together, and you're going to do a program for them. So here's my question to you. Because you're sales training them, what do you use as outbound marketing to connect with those people? I'm actually doing a two-minute on the main stage with one of the ideas that I've done with this, so I won't totally blow that one. But it's not any one thing. Well, now, keep in mind. When people hear this on VOE, it will be well past the main stage, so let me you can't blow anything. Let me give you a great idea okay. that you might have heard six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So when I get inquiries about doing sales training, or if you've brought me in but not in within the last year or so, um, I have, that's my hot list, right? I have 14,000 people on an email list. I will target 50 to 100 uh, of the hot list. So here's the idea that I said six months ago. I took a gizmo, which my logo looks like a Swiss Army knife, and I found these little gizmos that 
They fold out like a knife, but it's an iPhone connector, an Android connector, a USB, and whatever. Sure. So now you need a cable. One thing has all your cables. Right. Uh, I do a little theme with my stuff, so those say connected to your success on them. I, oh, I also nice. give people a phone stand that says supporting your success. I have a battery backup for your phone that says powering your success. And now I have webcam covers that you can slide the little thing to cover the webcam because everybody's paranoid about the webcams. And they say securing your success. So there's my little theme on there. So I take an envelope, but not in any envelope, a bubble envelope, you know, the plastic one. Sure. Eight and a half by 11 inches. Right. Orange. Right. My brand color being orange. There's a postcard inside. Six by nine postcard. One side looks like you laid a to-do list on a wooden table and it says 2018 marketing investment items or budget investment items. Marketing, advertising, website, whatever, some things. And then handwriting that says sales training with Alan Bird. Turn okay. it over and it says why should you have Alan come and train your sales team? That's a great idea and we could give you lots of reasons why, but don't take our word for it. Listen to companies just like you. Five one-line testimonials that all say a little something different. Alan turned my sales team into a selling machine. Uh, my team was motivated and energized, whatever, things like that. With the attribution, call to action says, if this is the kind of results that you want, call, email, text Alan today. Okay. So that's the postcard. Right. Postcard goes in the envelope. The Swiss Army knife goes in the envelope. Each envelope with what's inside cost me about $12 between postage and the gadget and the printing or whatever. Sure. Okay. But we're talking about sales training, so we're talking about a decent amount of money if they bring me in. Sure. Here's where it gets good. I mail them out. The very next day, I email all those people, and I say, Chuck, watch your mailbox for a big orange envelope from me. It should be coming early this week. Enjoy. That's it. Total tease. Right? I get a few emails back. Ooh, can't wait. Ooh, whatever. Because these are some people that I know pretty well, but they just haven't pulled the trigger yet to bring me in. Sure. And some people that have just inquired. Right. Then we look at the tracking number, see when they get it. Then I email you when you get it. Did you get your big orange envelope? That's the subject line. Inside right. it says, Chuck, the first step to getting more sales is getting noticed. That's why I sent your big orange envelope. Now that I have your attention, would it make sense to have me come and train your sales team? And I credit Lois Creamer to the would it make sense line because that's a great way to start a, start a question. All right. Now, if you don't respond, wait a couple of days. Do you remember getting a big orange envelope? The first of the four steps to more sales is getting people's attention. That's why I sent you the big orange envelope. And then I throw in a testimonial quote. You want your sales team to respond like this, one line testimonial quote, call to action. You still don't respond to that. This is my favorite one. Now I'm going to email you a few days later. Subject line, how persistent is your sales team? I'm, I'm teaching sales training, right? Nice. Inside it says, <laughs> I love this, we've been secret shopping businesses just like yours, and most give up after one or two attempts. Now what are you thinking right now? That you just got secret shopped. Right. Absolutely. Which I probably didn't, but it doesn't matter. Right. You think you did, right? We've been secret shopping businesses just like yours. Most give up after one or two attempts. How much money are you leaving on the table by not following up properly? And then I have somebody who talks about what I did, you know, one line testimonial, call to action again. That combination now gets me on people's radar. It's the email and direct mail combination because email, we're just too busy. We don't pay attention. Right. Mailbox shows up with an eight and a half by 11 inch orange envelope with a lump in it. Right. Okay? You're going to notice it. Alan, this has been really informative. A lot of opportunities for some really cool deep dives. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and share uh, this deeper insight um, here on VOE. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank, pleasure. thank you. It's uh, always fun talking with you, and on camera it's even better. And 
the spirit of NSA, I, I've learned so much through people here at NSA, and I love giving back. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Sorry, Alan, but I just couldn't resist. This is Chuck Gallagher, and it's Voices of Experience. And now here's Chuck with another interview for Voices of Experience. Hey, 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 you want to know how to grow your business, especially using LinkedIn? So we're taking a deep dive here with the one and only Phil Gerbershack. Now, if you've been in NSA for any length of time, you know Phil. You know, the guy with the really cool glasses. I mean, he's my best bud as he's got orange glasses and, well, I've got an orange jumpsuit. But look, enough of that. Phil shares cool, meaningful information about LinkedIn and how to grow your business. And, and by the way, at the end of this interview, Phil has a special NSA offer you won't want to miss. Now, here's Phil. Hi, this is Chuck Gallagher with VOE. My guest is Phil Gerbershack, and Phil, I'm thrilled that you're going to be on the show. Cool. I'm glad to be here, Chuck. Thanks, man. So, look, you've got a lot of experience, but I'm interested in practical application tips that will help us take our uh, speaking careers to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I work a, with a bunch of speakers on their LinkedIn presence. LinkedIn is probably the most underutilized social network of all of them because it isn't something you can just hand off to an assistant and make it happen. You have to really think about it and be mindful of it. Otherwise, it's not going to work for you. You know, the thing that I found fascinating about LinkedIn, and I'm going to be the first to say I am sure I am underutilizing it. So I know you're going to give me some tips that are going to help me. But the thing I found fascinating is I was trying to find a prospective client did not have the right contact information, went on LinkedIn, found an associate, uh, reached out and said, I would love to connect on LinkedIn. And in, within 15 minutes, they connected. And then I reached out and sent a message that said, I'm trying to reach, I'm trying to reach Phil Gerbershack and I don't have his number. Could you help? They said, well, I'm not sure if I know you. Well, I'm sure you don't, but we're connected on LinkedIn and I'm supposed to be meeting Phil, but I misplaced his number. Can you help? And you know what? They gave me the number. And I'm sitting there blown away by the fact that had I sent an email, it would have absolutely been ignored. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you think about it, the goal is to get to the communication point of lowest resistance. So email, we've got thousands of emails. We've got hundreds of tweets, right? People mention our content, but we have few LinkedIn messages that are meaningful. Now, there's tons of crap out there. A lot of people trying to sell you something. But if you actually ask for help, it is remarkable that people actually want to help you back. So I'm really not surprised by that at all, Chuck. So let's talk from a LinkedIn perspective. I'm going to call this LinkedIn 101. How am I going to build a connection or a base of people that I have the potential to be able to sell my experience or product with? Yeah, that's a great question. You do have to build that base, and it starts fundamentally with looking like a person of value. So that means your profile's complete, you've got a great header graphic, your picture is not a glamour shot from 1987, but it's a picture of you taken in the last 18 months. I can't tell you how many times I see speakers that use old pictures on LinkedIn, and then when they get to the event, people walk right past and like, can you find the speaker? No, I'm right here. <laughs> you don't even look the same. That's a problem, man. So we, we have to do that. And then 
we have to build out the profile as though we're looking to give someone a resource instead of giving them a resume. A lot of speakers, they'll put bullet points or they'll talk about how awesome they are, but won't show any proof. They won't have any testimonials or they, you won't have any videos. It'll just be a flat profile or worse yet, it will be so self-promotional that anybody that's looking at them is like, really, that blowhard? We're never gonna hire them. So we start with that foundational platform of a great profile and then from there, if we know who we wanna connect with, if we understand their demographic information, what types of companies they work at, who they might be connected to, and build out our network, and let's not forget to connect to each other. As speakers, we often think that we're in competition. Well, here's the thing. We have to cooperate together and help each other because, Chuck, if you know somebody and I know them, I want to know them, I'm going to ask you, hey, Chuck, will you make an introduction? Well, if we're friends, if we're on, in the NSA together, just that simple little bit of connection means, oh, you can ask. and. One thing that most people don't know is once we connect, if you use Sales Navigator, I can now reach through your network and I can connect to them with anybody on the planet and I don't even have to get your permission. So we might as well connect. We might as well help each other because people are going to pay for that right anyway. Okay. So now I'm, I, I feel like in this interview, and of course there's audio to the interview and there's video to the interview. So on the video side, I feel like I need to take my shoe off, stick it in mouth because I'm getting ready to really show my ignorance. But you just said, if I use Sales Navigator, I can, and I'm like, deer in the headlights, help me Sales Navigator? Yeah, so LinkedIn has premium products, right? They're not just a free tool. Right. As opposed to Facebook where it's just advertising or Twitter where you can promote a tweet. Sales Navigator allows you, as a speaker, to reach through the network and send some in-mails. In-mails are okay. unsolicited messages, but there used to be different levels. And there still is a premium. Premium gives you that, but it doesn't give you all the granularity that you need to really target in on the best buyer. And it's great for sales, right? Sales Navigator. So, okay. Whoa, whoa. So, so I'm premium on LinkedIn, yep. which is apparently a level, mm -hmm. but I obviously... You're not Sales Navigator. In Sales Navigator, since I don't know what it is. Yep. So I would take your premium account and upgrade it to Sales Navigator. It's only about $20 more a month, but imagine if you could take the whole white pages, the whole yellow pages, everybody, and instead of only getting eight categories, which is what the free version of LinkedIn gives you, 40 categories now that you can search on LinkedIn so that you can target that so you can see how long they're enrolled. When is the last time that they posted on LinkedIn? Because to your point, if you knew that this person hadn't posted for a year and a half on LinkedIn, you'd know that that's probably not the best way to communicate with them. Right. But you don't know that unless you have Sales Navigator. So take your premium membership, don't throw it away, but upgrade to Sales Navigator. Take it to the next level. It's only, like I said, about $20 or $25 more a month, and it's completely worth it. And if you get one gig, because it's about $80 a month, at $1,000, one gig pays for that. So it's totally worth it. So, so with Sales Navigator, what you're saying to me is, is then through that upgrade, I now have access to be able to find more detailed information about my prospective Customer, um, client? Not, not more detailed information, but to be able to search in a more detailed way. Okay. So the difference being everybody has the same information on their profile. That would be available. But if I'm searching just for people named Chuck that live in New York City, I'm going to get a million people. But imagine I'm going to search for people named Chuck 
who live in New York City that are in the manufacturing industry that, have, that are C-level, that have been at a company for five years that have posted over the last six months on LinkedIn. Now I have some information so I can make a, a really intelligent reach out. That's really important. And on the free side, you only get like eight or ten filters. You only get a few things to search for. And you don't get any of those premium things. You can't search as well in company size. And they max out the number of searches that you can do. So if you're a good speaker and you're selling yourself and you're doing a great job of prospecting, on the free side, you're going to run out of time on the 18th or 19th of the month, thus leaving your pipeline dry for 10 days. Well, I'm not telling you you need to search for 1,000 people a month, but I encourage you to find the right person, narrow it down as much as you can, so that if it's manufacturing CEOs who've been at their company for six years or more, now I can target my message right at them. If I'm targeting at senior event professionals and I want to target them based on how long they've owned their company or how long they've been doing something, I can do that now with Sales Navigator. I can't do that with a free version. Okay, so Phil, let's take Sales Navigator and you have very masterfully walked us through why you should be involved and the kinds of things that you will look for. So let's say we've done that. And let's say I have 50 prospects. Then the question becomes, um, which may or may not fall in your wheelhouse. So through LinkedIn, what's the kind of communication that people are more apt to respond to? Because I get lots of things where, you know, I'd like you to try my this or could you help me with that? But it always is a veiled sales attempt. And it seems like people just kind of yeah, ignore it. Yeah, they absolutely do. So uh, the first thing to understand is the three eyes of how to connect with people. It's not about selling, it's about earning the next step. Okay, let's be clear. So the first one is what you did, and that's the in common. Oh, Chuck, seeing as you know Rick, I wanna know Rick, would you make a connection? Or Rick wants to connect to me, and he says, hey, I see you're also connected to Chuck. We should talk about Chuck, let's have a conversation. Or I see that you've attended this conference or something in common, right? It could be a shared experience, it could be a shared person, it could be that you know we both are part of a certain group on LinkedIn or we're fans of a certain thing. Whatever that is, that's in common. That's the first thing and that's often that's the easiest thing because that's right. not sales. Right. That's really just paying attention. So many people don't, they send out boring generic messages. So don't do that. So start with that first eye. The second one is insight. If you're a good speaker, you've done your research. You're familiar with the industry that you're with or you paid someone to do the research. So you have a little nugget of insight that somebody in that position needs. Now that's not about, hey, sign me up to be your keynote speaker for such and such conference. It's insight into their profession because what people want now is not the most amazing speaker, they want the most relevant speaker. You have to be relevant and by offering that insight right up front about their industry or about their position or about typical challenges, now you can stand out. And the third one is one that as speakers we do naturally but we forget that it connects to people and this is the one that you kind of have to reach for because it's the last resort and that's being interesting. Being interesting, so recently, you know, I rode on a plane with Darius Rucker of Hootie and the Blowfish. Right. Now, if I notice that this person is from South Carolina, where 
Darius Rucker is from, this might be a great opportunity to be interesting and to share that bit of information. Or, at the same time, instead of being interesting, be interested. Hey Chuck, I see that you just posted something and it's of real interest to me. Can we have a conversation about that? Now the key to that is once we earn that next step, don't go right into sales mode. Instead, be genuine, build the relationship, be interested in what they have to say. Whatever the three eyes you use and take the time to build that relationship. Don't just jump into the sales world. Now, do you, do you find that when you start this process, this dance yep. of being interested and being interesting and, and, and having a relevant reason to connect, once that, once you've done that portion, when you start the sales mode, is there or are there things that in general, and I know that there's nothing that's standard, but in general, are there things that are more effective in LinkedIn than other means of communication? Uh, or is that really a stupid question? Well, I wouldn't say it's a stupid question. I, I think it's understanding now how people communicate which means you don't send them a long message anymore. You get right to the point. You share one or two lines, and the goal again is to advance the conversation. Especially on LinkedIn, you don't wanna pop into sales mode. You might wanna ask for an offline telephone call. You might wanna see, hey, can we get together for coffee if they're in your city? Or hey, I'm speaking at such and such event. Would you like to be my guest at this event? But be short, be brief, one point. One point, that's all in the email. You don't want to barf everything on them. You might even want to ask them at some point, hey, I noticed that you have this event here in March. Are you the one responsible for hiring speakers for that? Or is there someone in your organization that I could talk to because I know that I could help? And here's how I could add value. We have to be very clear about that. We have to explain that. Not just, I'm a really good speaker, so you should hire me. But why am I relevant to that audience? And that's where, if you do that pre-work, it's a lot easier to be relevant than it is if we just jump right in. So the idea of, and I'm kind of switching gears slightly within LinkedIn, but the idea of, let me send you an article I just wrote, or here's a video that's relevant to a particular topic is too salesy. It, it can be too salesy unless it's perfectly relevant. So that means that article that you wrote for that industry is a good article okay? because you use their name. That video that you submitted for that industry is perfectly relevant, which means you need to create different pieces of content. Also, a great way to get in front of people is to actually comment on their stuff. Hey, Chuck, you just posted something. That's really interesting, and here's my thoughts on it. And rewrite an article, and then make sure you tag them. That's the other thing that speakers often miss is they forget. Add the at symbol, spell out their name. Now, speakers also often get cute with their name, and they add symbols and emojis and other stuff that makes no sense, right? If you add even the CSP designation after that, it changes the way people search for you. You see a lot of attorneys don't even add JD or Esquire to theirs. Mm -hmm. It's not because they're not proud of it. It's because that goes down in the certifications. That's not your name. I, I don't so. know that, right? I don't know that you're a CSP until I know that you're a CSP. So I'm not searching for that. You don't want to obfuscate your search with any junk because that prevents people from finding you. It makes it harder to tag you, makes them harder to search for you. Not good. So to your point about 
the relevant stuff, absolutely, but be hyper-relevant and hyper-focused. And when you share it, instead of even going private, sometimes you want to share that in public. Sometimes you want to tag them in public, but only if it's relevant. Phil, thanks. thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for being on VOE. I really appreciate the absolutely great information that you've shared with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Chuck. Remember at the beginning, I said there was a special offer that Phil was making for NSA members. So you want to book more gigs in 2019? Have you been messing around with LinkedIn, but gotten slim to no results? Well, if that's the case, you need a plan. You need the LinkedIn sales blueprint. What Phil is offering are five videos to walk you through how to create a profitable network, how to connect with more buyers, how to create content on LinkedIn, and how to put it into place in a digital daily dozen of things you can do in 30 minutes a day to grow your speaking and training business. Now, if you want to sign up for this self-paced course, LISBP.com, that's LISBP.com and be prepared for your business to reach new heights. Go to LISBP.com for the special offer by Phil Gerbershack. If you were to mystery shop yourself or your topic, what would you find? Maybe better ask, would you be happy with what you find? If the answer to that question is a resounding yes, then, well, you may not want to listen to this segment of VOE. But if you think there's room for improvement, then Ford's sakes is the man. Now, in the interest of full transparency, I'm a big Ford fan. And I, I think you'll find great information in my interview with Ford. So, here we go. My guest on VOE is Ford Sakes. And Ford, uh, years ago, uh, you came to NSA Carolinas. Mm -hmm. You did a great program. And as part of that program, you challenged us to make sure that uh, our digital footprint was going to feed us properly. And that's my terminology. Right. And, uh, and I remember... I remember at the end of the program, sitting back thinking to myself, okay, should I, oh, wow, can I really afford to, to take my website to where it needs to be? Yes. I, I, I remember that. And I, I picked up the phone and I called you and uh, you could tell there was a little apprehension and, and you, you made a comment to me and it went something like, I guarantee you that your sales will increase if you change your website and really make it effective. And I thought, okay. And I took the bite and I have never regretted that. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's good news. Uh, even though we're doing VOE, I'm getting a testimonial. Well, I'm just saying. That, to me, is the kind of thing that you bring to the table and why I want to interview you for VOE, because I, every time we talk, there is something that you share with me that helps me understand something that I can do. It may be small and right. simple, but something that I can do that is going to change my business in a positive way. Well, you know, it's really important to, when you think about, don't think about it as a website and even digital footprint. So what does that really mean? What it really means is what shows up when someone Googles you or your key topic that you want to be found on. So that's really what we're talking about. It's just, what's your reach and what's your influence, no pun intended, but how do, you, how do you show up? So regardless of what your fee is, if you were to mystery shop yourself, 
and go to any major search engines, go to Google and type in your name, type in your company name, type in your topic, type in your topic in a city and just kind of do some basic research. You'll see real quickly. And if you aren't, if you aren't dominating that space, then if you're trying to get that organic traffic, the people that you know, not paid traffic, but just to be found, if people don't know who you are, that's what you really have to work on. Treating it as a business. So yes, it's, it's the technology of the website, but it's really how do you show up and what kind of message are you bringing? So what I do is help someone package and monetize their content, create value propositions, and then communicate it to the market. The website's just a vehicle. Okay. So let's go backwards just a second. Sure. I help businesses do this and this and this. And you said it so quickly, and it was a great 30-second elevator speech. But, but take me through, as a speaker, what specific steps do I really need to focus on? Because there's a lot of okay. noise out there. All right. Well, the first, so, so specifically, get your pens out. The first thing you should do for, in your case, you would go, uh, as being an ethics speaker, we'll just say as a hypothetical term, you would go to Google and you type in ethics speaker. And then you might put speaker on ethics. And you'd use all the different search phrases. First thing you would do is you'd look at what websites show up. Are the bureau sites showing up? Are your competitors showing up? Are you showing up? Our articles about that, what actually shows up. And then you want to spend some time researching and finding out, do you own it? So you need to find out where the gaps are and the opportunities. Okay. So that's the first part. You have to mystery shop yourself, find out where the opportunities are. But more importantly, I'd probably say a step back from that if we were going to go you know, tactically, it's really to look at what's your identity? What do you really want to be known for? I mean, you know, it's as we walk the halls of NSA and you ask someone what they do and it's, I'm leadership, I'm diversity, I'm sales, I'm marketing, uh, you know, I'm customer service. And you really need to specialize. I really believe that what do you want your identity to be? So in my case, my identity is business growth. Now, Chuck, a funny thing is when I started in NSA, you know, 25 years ago, I thought I was going to be a marketing speaker. And I really am. I'm known as marketing. But really, that's the vehicle. That's the feature. Marketing is the feature. People don't uh, they, they do hire marketing speakers, but what they really want is the result of marketing. Right. So that's when I started to promote business growth, and then that opens a wider door, but still is very targeted and allows me to track the the clients that hire me to speak. So if if I'm sitting there and say, as you said, right. I'm going to take whatever my lane is, right? Okay, and I'm going to research it and see things that pop up. Now, when I first did that, um, I saw who were my competitors because, right, of course, right, I didn't right, exist. Right. Of course, yeah. And a lady said to me, she said, you need to write a blog a day, five days a week for six months. And she said, you will organically appear. One way to do it, certainly. More content. Okay. So it was content driven. And in six months, sure enough, I was displacing my competitors. Right. That's true. So outside, because people look at me when I say that, it's like, oh my God, that's not possible. How else would I naturally want to, or what else would I naturally want well, to do? You want to think about, you know, if we're all content experts, you know, whatever the listeners are and the viewers are, you know, you're a content expert and you have to be able to share your content. So one of the things that I do, for example, is instead of trying to write every single day, what you can do is you can repackage and repurpose your content. So you would start, for example, I have a show I do on Thursdays. It's a YouTube channel on Fortify, how to fortify your business, you know, find, attract, and keep your buyers. Well, I take the video and I put it on, on YouTube on Thursday. I put it on Facebook on Friday. Then I transcribe it and it becomes a blog post. Then I take the audio track and it becomes a podcast. Then on Monday, I put it up on LinkedIn. So it's really taking one piece of content, you know, four-minute, five-minute video, and then repurposing it 
not only repurposing it, but then you can also take excerpts from it and use it on Twitter and Instagram and you know all the other social media platforms. So it's really about taking a look at your content and being topical as much as you can, you know, so you own your topic and you know paying attention to what's really going on so you can create relevant content that's fresh that helps position you and your business as the expert. Okay, so I see fortify. Okay. And so I'm going to curious. I want to. I want to. Sure, go for it. Let's board go. down with that for just yeah. a second. So on Thursday, you posted on. I you- posted on YouTube. YouTube. So you film it, and I take the video, and I post it on YouTube. Okay. Then on Friday, it's going on Facebook. So on Friday, I'm going to take the video, and not, we're not talking about linking it on Facebook. We're talking about natively linking it on Facebook. But unfortunately, you know, Facebook's changed a lot of their their rules now. So. Organic contact or organic reach is really low on Facebook unless you're paying to play. But but for the listeners, it's about taking it one place and then actually using it another place. So, okay. Yes. So when you go through that process, which is multiple steps, yep. okay, they kind of carry you around to the next week so that right. you start the process again. Right. Of those, have you been able to determine which of those seems to have the most oomph? Well, you, you get two oomphs. You get the direct oomph, let's just say, from people <laughs> That's who, a great word, right? Yeah, what was just today? You get trademark that. You get the direct oomph uh, at directoomph.com. But you, you get the direct oomph, just kidding, and you get the direct oomph from, from the piece that might be going out. But then you also get it from your footprint. So imagine a committee, a meeting planner. You know, we all know that a lot of committees make the meeting planner decision. So if I talk to the meeting planner, I'll say, let me send you some information on, you know, here's, here's some key points. Well, if they Google my name, which is what I'll tell them to do, just, just go Google my name. Well, then they see all these things that pop up and it positions me as the expert. So... I see that. I completely right, right, get right. that. So, but but somewhere there is some strategy to obviously fortify sure. and to having a consistent message and a consistent. Well, yeah, you, look. yeah. You really want to start out first, and if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna think about how you actually plan a show, and and what I'd really encourage uh, to listeners to do is there's two videos to look at. If you go to YouTube and you search for fortify video marketing. I actually did a video specifically on this. There's nothing to buy or opt in. It's free. You just go there on YouTube. But fortify video marketing, and it'll show you exactly what the stages are. And I also have the exact process of how to script the video. So, you know, there's strategically, there's a very clear way to do it that's going to get you the most views and also the most engagement. And so it's not just producing video. It's how do you produce it in a way that actually gets watched, gets engagement, and gets shares. So, Ford, I... Because I know you know all this stuff, sure, which I'm, sure. I'm really amazed by. Sure. At one point in time, and not long, that long ago, there was a Periscope. Yeah, there was yeah Periscope and and Blab and a few other of those technologies. Right, and people yeah. would get excited about it. Now and it's then, Facebook Live, and now it's Facebook Live. Yeah. And the thing that I, you know, that gets me is I see people on Facebook Live, and I'm like, what the heck was that? It's like, well, I'm having a conversation with people, and I do see people liking it, hearting and hating and whatever, but I'm wondering, what is that content that you're going to cause a meeting planner to say, yeah, I want to buy you? Well, you know, that's the problem. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, people are are busy, but they're not productive. You know, they, they think that they're social networking, but they're social networking. You know, they're doing all these things to to think because they go to NSA and they go to a breakout. Oh, and they take all these notes and they, they get busy, but that's not really going to get them booked. So if you're going to do Facebook Live, let's talk specifically on that, then you have to understand, you know, who's likely to watch it? What do you want them to do? What do you really want them? What action steps do you want them to take? Well, of course, what are the action steps with any content ma- uh, media? You want them to, one, consume it. 
right? You want them to read it, consume it, sure. learn from it. Right. Uh, you want them to share it. Hopefully they consume it and they tell their friends. Uh, you want them to like it, which gives it more authority. So if they like it, uh, or you want them to... Um, actually comment you know so if you go from from the lowest level is just consumption the next level is sharing the next level is um, commenting and then the, the best level is actually creating content on it so if I go to one of your videos and you know I still remember you as you trained me as an expert and trained my company on ethics and you know honesty in, in the workplace and how that all works and you talked about how things that become socially acceptable, and like you, the story you gave me about speeding, you know, sure. it's socially acceptable, everybody does it. If you ask someone if they break the law, they say no, but then if you ask them if they speed, they say yes, well then they break, break the law, law right? You, you, sure. So I remember that story from years ago. So it's those stories that really t you know, take off. Well, it's really looking at how do you take that content and then make it relevant so that people want to share it, they want to engage, they want to talk about it, and it becomes part of your visibility. <laughs> No, 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 nothing's wrong. We just we just had to stop this incredible interview. But Ford will be back with more, much more, this coming month as I continue my interview with Ford Sakes. Barry Banther knows lasting leadership. And he's been applying it both professionally in his speaking career as well as here at NSA. And he's written over 50 leadership development programs used in industries around the world. His latest book, A Leader's Gift, how to Earn the Right to be Followed achieved number one bestseller status on Amazon on its release day. Now, in April, here on VOE is Barry Banther. Hi, this is Chuck Gallagher with VOE. Barry Banther is my guest. Barry, you're on the board of directors mm -hmm. and you were instrumental in the process of selecting our new CEO. Well, I was blessed to be chairman of the CEO Transition Committee, a great team. Of, of members both from the board and our membership at large from chapter leadership and I'm very pleased that I think with a marvelous slate of candidates we chose the best one. So as people are listening to this a good number of folks in NSA have uh, perhaps been to the winter conference or they've certainly been to summer influence and yet there's a number of people who are going to be listening to VOE who have not met our CEO. So tell us a little bit about her and what we're to expect. Well, Mary Lou Peck had spent the last dozen years with the Institute of Supply Management, developed a national reputation not only for sound fiscal management but also for compelling programming that grew that association. And so we can expect from her that she'll bring best practices for associations. She will absolutely be committed to member value. Everything will begin, everything will be measured by member value. And then she'll bring a strong management, uh, not only financially, but to the structure as we move forward. So I, I think we're going to see continued progress and growth. Uh, and, and I'm very excited about what she offers for us for an opportunity for that. Now, you and I both go back to North Carolina, kind of have our roots back there. Yeah. What got you initially into professional speaking? Well, initially as a young boy, uh, growing up in a sawmill family, I was about six when my dad said, look, you're left-handed, you can't work in a sawmill, you'll have to do something else, teach you something. <laughs> uh, and so that started me on a different path. I got into broadcasting at a very young age, into radio, and spent 15 years in that genre. Sure. And from that into teaching, and then from teaching, it, it continued to progress. I've been very blessed 
uh, to lead several organizations. Uh, as a college president, I was chairman of the State Board of Independent Colleges and Universities in Florida. So I got some good management experience, some good tutors that helped me. And then uh, in 1994, we opened up our management consulting firm, which is really rooted in speaking and then expanding in the training and then consulting. Gotcha. So you, you've been around to see the transformation that's taking place. Mm -hmm. And what you and I both know for NSA is going to be a future transformation. Right. How do you today navigate that transformation? As an individual member? Uh, as an individual member and as, as a business in that, uh, you know, your business of speaking and consulting and training continues. So what are you doing today that continues to propel your business forward? Well, one of the things that has been important from the beginning, but I think even Chuck, more important today, and that's hardwiring the voice of my customer into our business so that we're not pushing out to the customer what we think are the strategies or the tools or the opportunities, but they're hardwired into us so that our customers every day are pulling from us the things they want. The content, intellectual property, that's our responsibility. But whether it's facilitation or coaching or training or speaking, whatever the platform is for that to happen, that's really got to be led by the customer. So that's the number one thing that's driving our business forward is hardwiring the voice of the customer into our business. So when you say hardwiring the voice of the customer into the business, let's say for hypothetical purposes, mm -hmm. I, I'm a customer. Number one, First question, and I know I'm pulling the weeds, uh, the uh -huh. onion back, but first question is, if I've never been a customer, how do, how do, you, how do I acquire you or, or you acquire me? So for us, for our, our particular model, what has worked well is that I speak in an association, and within that association are business owners. That's yes. the best association for me to speak in. And if I'm speaking to 500 business owners, 10 to 20 of them will come up to me afterwards and say, I think maybe you can help us. Of that 10 or 20, four or five will take that to the next step where we actually get a chance to meet with them and initially give a proposal to them. So what drives that is our business is that model. Now, we're grateful. The majority of our clients have been clients for 15 years or longer. So we have a, a strong retaining ability with those clients uh, for the variety of services we offer to them. So Barry, now this is my ignorance, so I'm going to be the first to say that. Um, but as a CSP and a member of the board of directors, if you've got a client that's stayed with you for 15 years, mm -hmm. um, what is the propelling reason they're staying? And, and I say that with, with all due respect to people right. listening to this, it's like, Chuck, what the heck are you asking a dumb no, question a like question. that for? But as a, as a presenter on ethics, mm -hmm. it, it's fairly obvious if they bring me in to do a program, then next year when the time comes and they need to check the box that they're continuing to reinforce ethics, they've heard my message, so right. they're likely going to call Bruce Weinstein right. or someone else, that Frank Beccaro, but mm -hmm. someone else who is in that space. So to keep a client for 15 years says to me that you're doing something different. Well, I think what has worked best for us, Chuck, is that we, as I said a moment ago, we, we're hard, what we're hardwired in so that we're listening to the voice of that customer. Sure. But we did a brand study a few years ago asking those long-term customers, why do you keep hiring us? And the overwhelming response was, we know we're going to have a problem in our business. Our clients are primarily closely held or family-owned businesses. We know we're going to have a problem in our business this year. We won't bear to be with us in that problem. I see. So we're focused more on their problem, and then we'll help them decide, is that a training solution? Is that a speaking solution? Is that a consulting solution? So we come alongside and partner with them in helping them face whatever problems are going to come to them in, in, the, in the year ahead. Now, how long have you been with NSA? Almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. Okay. So 
first, because you told me the history mm -hmm. of, of getting involved in this industry, what brought you to NSA? I had heard of NSA, and I was already speaking. Uh, had my practice had already begun, and I met a few people that had been in NSA, and I attended the Central Florida chapter, which to this day has been the compelling driver of my business. Over these two decades in NSA Central Florida, starting with Terry Brock and so many others I could mention, I've learned how to grow my business year after year and gained a great community, a relationship with people that, as you know, in a profession where sometimes it can be lonely, it's, it's a marvelous community that will pick you up when you're down, sit you down when you need to sit down, <laughs> and encourage you along the way. You know, I, I, I love that you say that because uh, there are a lot of people, I'm in the Carolinas chapter, right? Okay, and there are a lot of people that I know who are NSA national members but aren't involved in the chapter. And I have yet to find uh, no value in the chapter. The, the chapter is incredibly yes. valuable. I, yes. I was with NSA North Texas and now Carolinas, and you're talking about Central Florida. And that's where you develop compelling relationships. And, and Chuck, I'm convinced that if they give it a try, not just one meeting, but if they say, all right, I'm going to take a year and be a chapter member, then I think they'll recognize the value. I can't imagine a chapter of our 30-plus chapters that if someone doesn't come for a year that they'll say, I'm in. This is where I need to be. And, and I believe it's also important because that's the community get, that helps us become good. And you don't do that in isolation. If a person came up to you in the hallway, and, and, and you're very open and very giving, but if a person came up to you in the hallway and said, hey, Barry, what do I need to know? No, I'm, I'm, I'm a new member here at NSA. Uh, I'm new to the organization. Maybe not new to speaking. You weren't new to speaking, right. but, but new to NSA. What advice would you give them? My advice would be that you've got to get all in. Now, you've got to get all in where it makes sense for you. Are you trying to build your content? Then take a look at all of our educational offerings that will help you build the content. Trying to build the business, certainly coming up at Influence uh, every year, there's an opportunity to build that uh, business practice. If you're looking to gain a, a group of people that can be in a mastermind, do that. Be selfish. Seek to be involved in those areas where you think it's going to strengthen your business. And as you do that, you'll begin to discover you're giving back. You're adding to the content discussion. You're adding to the mastermind. You're adding to the business skills. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle. You have, to, you have to get involved and sense what it's going to do for you. You obviously have done that. Mm -hmm. You're currently on the board. You have been very active in NSA. Mm -hmm. I want to thank, first, thank you for being a guest well, on thank VOE. thank you, my privilege. And thank you for the leadership that you provided in the process of selecting our new CEO. Thank because you. I honestly believe with everything that I've heard and what you have said and, and having the brief opportunity to meet our new CEO that we've got a bright, bright future yes, ahead. There's no question about that. The opportunity is great because there's, there are more and more people choosing to share their intellectual property with the spoken word. Uh, we've got the opportunity because as, a, as an association, we're so diverse from people that have been doing it for decades to people that have been doing it for days. So I think, this, I think our best moments, we're proud of our past, but I think we're very serious about our future. I think our best moments are just in front of us. Barry Banther, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Chuck. My pleasure. Thanks for listening and being a part of Voices of Experience. NSA provides professional speakers with the comprehensive resources, mentoring, and professional connections that we need to become more efficient and more effective in all aspects of our profession. So if you're tuning in but not a member of the National Speakers Association, visit nsaspeaker.org. That's nsaspeaker.org and consider joining us. I promise 
You won't regret it. And of course, stay tuned for VOE in May, where once again you'll hear a great lineup of industry greats share their wisdom so that we can expand the pie and grow our business. See y'all in May. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.